Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com. Sketches from Scripture presents Great News, a teaching series from the Gospel of Matthew. The Jewish nation had put their trust in the God of Abraham, the law of Moses, and the kingdom of David. But by the first century, they were under Roman rule, their moral culture was eroding, and it seemed their God was hidden away behind gates and curtains. Suddenly, an unknown manual laborer from a small village hits the streets with a fantastic announcement. The Gospel according to Matthew tells the story of a self-proclaimed rabbi from Nazareth who took Galilee by storm, then Judea, then Jerusalem, then Samaria, then the whole Roman world to the entire earth. In his many teachings and stories, Rabbi Yeshua brings but one message. Your heart and life can be changed because God, King of the universe, is right in front of you. So follow me. This is Great News. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the woman, Don't be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then, Jesus met them and said, greetings. They came up, took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. So, pause here. This is a couple of remarkable things that are are happening here. First of all, there's this great earthquake. The guards that are there faint. They they become as dead men, so we sort of take that to mean that they, they faint, they pass out. And then there's this angel, which, by the way, the word angel comes from the Greek word angelos, which just means messenger. And so sometimes you have to kind of decipher if you're reading in the Greek. Uh, and also the, the Hebrew word for angel, which I don't know, also means messenger. And so uh, when you're reading in the original language, sometimes you have to decipher from context. Is this a human messenger that has come or is this a spiritual messenger? What we commonly think of as, as an angel. Uh, in this case, clearly there's a spiritual thing happening. This is uh, an angel that has been sent by the Lord to give a, a divine revelation. But it, whether it's a, a merely a human messenger imparting a message or whether it is an angelic being, as we typically think of angels, the the mission is the same. They're a messenger. That's what the word means. In fact, that angelos Greek word is the root of another word, uh, evangelion, which if you or to see spelled out on paper, you would realize is the uh, the Greek word where we get the English word 
evangelism, evangelize. So now you can hear the word angel inside the word evangelize, evangelize, right? And so the whole point of evangelism is that you're going out as a messenger, that you are an angel, you are a messenger. So clearly what we see happening here is we definitely see uh, a spiritual thing here, a miraculous thing happening, but it's performing uh, the act of, of giving a message. And so the angel here is giving a message to the women that have come to take care of the body. Now we've been looking at Jesus predicting the things that were going to happen, his death, that he was going to raise again in three days. And we've seen the disciples didn't really understand what he was talking about. How could they? I mean, how, how could they have an idea about something that's never happened before? Even after the raising of uh, Lazarus, which you read about in the Gospels, you know, it, it, it seems, how could they really understand that Jesus would raise himself, you know, that he could do this of his own power? It's, um, it's a new thing that's happening. And so why, why would they have a, a concept of it? So what you see is the women now who, if Jesus was buried on Friday night, then Friday at sundown begins the Sabbath and so Friday at sundown begins the Sabbath, and all day while the sun is up on Saturday is the Sabbath. No work may be done, very limited travel. Uh, of course, this is a, a high holy day because it's also this Passover is happening. And so there's a, a lot of extra reverence and things going on because of that. There are also um, many of these people have come from Galilee to Jerusalem. All G you know, Jesus and the disciples have come from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And so they're staying in the house their guests in other people's homes and these kinds of things. So they wouldn't be able to do anything on Saturday, wouldn't be able to visit the grave or anything. So now they go to visit the tomb on Sunday morning because after sunset on Saturday, the Sabbath is over, but of course that's also dark, right? And so you're you're at home and you're going to sleep. So this is the first opportunity to come and take care of the body. So as I've said before, what they would do, they would bring the body down, they'd wrap the body in linen, and with the body, they would wrap up perfume and spices and these kinds of things. Indeed, in the Gospel of John, we see Nicodemus brings, I believe it's 75 pounds of burial spice. This was no small amount. I mean, you can hear in the weight that it's a lot of things, but even a small amount was very expensive. Uh, what Nicodemus is bring, bringing to bury Jesus in is probably a family heirloom. I mean, it's the kind of thing that you would use to to bury a king. You would not use it to bury a homeless carpenter from um, from from Galilee, from Hicksville. Uh, you would you would only use this amount to to bury someone very important, royalty, really. And so uh, Jesus has been wrapped up with these things, but now the women are coming Sunday morning because in a, a typical body, which would decompose which stays dead, then you would want to continue pouring oil on it and spices and perfumes and that sort of thing, because the family is going to come and mourn. The friends are going to come and mourn. They're going to come and sit in the grave. This is a very odd thing to us, but it's a tomb. And so that the area of the tomb is about the size of a, it's a small room and there's a grave slot where the body is, or there's a shelf that the body is laying on. And so people can come in where the body is and mourn. This is not dissimilar to our funerals, our wake, that sort of thing. The process is different and the technology is different and these kinds of things, but it's a very similar thing. We we go to the funeral home and the and the body is there and we, we grieve together and we, we encourage each other and, and love each other. And we remember the person that we're losing and we spend time doing that before um, you know they, they are they are buried for good, and so this week long mourning process that's their version of a funeral. So they're going to come and they're going to visit, and so here you see the women uh, coming to visit the body. So they get there. There's the earthquake. The guards faint. The angel appears. It's very 
spectacular event. And they say what Jesus has already said. I think that you may remember a little while earlier, Jesus said, I'll, I'll go to Galilee ahead of you. He tells the disciples, although, you know, they pro- I don't even know if they remember it because they, um, what, what would that mean? Where's he going? They, they don't really understand what's happening until after it happens. And so now the angel is coming, giving a message. And it's not just a message of, okay, here's some things to do, but it's also a message that what Jesus said before, I am now confirming as a clear messenger of the Lord. In the same way that the angels came to announce Jesus's birth, now they've come to announce his second birth, his resurrection, right? His his rebirth into the new body, the new life, uh, the firstborn of this new creation. And so they say, go quickly, tell his disciples he's risen. They, they, he encourages them, look, you can see he's not here. And now these women are going to go. As they're going to the disciples, they meet Jesus himself. And they see Jesus and they worship him, Matthew says. Now, remember, Matthew's a Jew. He's writing to his fellow contemporary first century Jews. The thought of worshiping a human being is blasphemy to a monotheistic Jew. You worship only God, God alone. And here you have women falling at Jesus's feet and worshiping. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. I'm just a guy. No, he doesn't do that. He lets them worship. And he says, don't be afraid. And he, and he speaks to them as if he's God. Don't be afraid. Go tell them, you know, I'll meet them in Galilee. And he accepts the worship. So uh, whether or not you believe Jesus is God, what you have to see in this moment is that Jesus thinks that he's God because he's allowing them, he's allowing himself to be worshiped. And Matthew is certainly portraying him as God. And these women think that he's God because they're worshiping him. And, and, and Matthew's recounting this period of worship that, that Jesus doesn't negate. And so um, this is, again, proof for those first century Jews. No, Jesus was God. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a cool guy. He's not just a profound philosopher. You know, there's a lot of the world that will accept Jesus, the philosopher, that love Jesus, the, the loving servant. They really like Jesus, the, the, the feeding of the 5,000. They really like Jesus, the teacher. They think, that's, they think that's really good, but they don't accept Jesus, the Lord, Jesus, the King, Jesus, the Savior. And this is showing Jesus is God. That's part of the story. It's a big part of the story. It's the crux of the story. And if you can't accept that, then you have to believe that Jesus is a blasphemer and you can't, you shouldn't associate with anything that he taught, said, or did. So this is a big deal. Uh, another thing about this story is, uh, as we may have talked about before, much of Matthew draws upon Mark. So Mark was, as we know now, probably the first gospel written. Matthew is first in, in the biblical canon because for a long time, it was thought that Matthew was first. And uh, part of this is because I think some of the stories in Mark are, are longer. So Matthew kind of condenses some of them, whereas uh, Mark will just kind of go on and have some more details about things. And so people uh, assume that Mark was condensing Matthew when instead now we believe Matthew was using Mark and was expounding on some of the stories, maybe to provide some context or some greater understanding or make a little different point out of them because Mark and Matthew's audiences seem to be different audiences. Um, but Mark is uh, seems to be the first gospel and quite possibly was written very close to the events themselves. Some people believe as early as the 40s. So while Paul was alive and, and, and beginning his ministry. Some people think it was more like the, the 50s or 60s, and then Matthew was maybe written late 60s uh, or possibly uh, you know as late as the, the 80s or 90s. It just kind of depends on who you talk to and, and what they think about things. But 
Uh, I tend to favor a lot of the earlier dates uh, for for some reason. So, uh, but it's just hard to know. We, it's a lot of speculation. It's looking at old manuscripts. It's um, it's a lot of speculative study is involved. But what we're pretty sure on is, is Mark was first, and Matthew was using Mark as a source. So Matthew had Mark as a source, and then there is some other source that Matthew and Luke seem to share because Matthew and Luke have a lot of um, information in common. Some of the information they have in common, they've clearly gotten from Mark because Mark also shares that information. Other things that Matthew and Luke have in common, such as the Sermon on the Mount and, and some of the parables, Mark does not have those, but Matthew and Luke both do have those, and they're nearly identical in Matthew and Luke. So either Luke was written after Matthew and used Matthew as a source, that's a possibility, or Matthew and Luke drew upon some other source. Uh, so some uh, people talk about a Q source. They just call it Q. I think Q stands for quotations, but it just means the, the sayings of Jesus. And it might not have even been a written document as we have zero copies of any kind of Q document. We have zero textual evidence that any Q document existed. So some think maybe it was just a, sort of an oral document. Maybe, perhaps many of these gospels began orally and then were finally written down. And so some people think, you know, the sayings of Jesus was sort of another oral tradition that Matthew and Luke incorporated and, and wrote down portions of that into their text. Uh, it's really impossible to know about a lot of those things. But what we do know is that it's pretty certain Matthew used Mark as a text. And so if we go to uh, Mark chapter 16, so we're going to put our digital finger on Matthew 28 and flip over to Mark chapter 16. And we see the very same events taking place. So even though this lesson is really about the storytelling of Matthew, I do want to just show something that's going on in Mark because um, I think it tells us a little bit about why Matthew makes changes that he does. So let's look at Mark 16 real quick. When This, uh, this is beginning of verse one, Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they could go and anoint him. So here they're buying the spices. Again, they would not have been able to buy spices on the Sabbath because everything would have been closed. And they wouldn't have known to do it on Friday because they didn't know Jesus was going to die. So this is the first time they've had a chance to buy some things. Uh, so Sunday morning, very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robes sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. They went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Now look at this note. Some of the earliest manuscripts conclude with Mark 16 and verse 8. Now, the rest of us have verse 9 and following, and old copies of the manuscript do have the rest of this chapter 16 of Mark. But many of the oldest, earliest manuscripts that we've been able to uh, find and decipher and discern end right here at chapter 16, verse 8. They went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them, and they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Whoa, what a cliffhanger. Why would you end right there? Mark, <laughs> like, why would you stop right there? Why would you do that? It seems crazy. 
So when we find in other manuscripts, Mark 9, you know, through the rest of the chapter, we seem, oh, it's very clear the rest of this has to go in there. I mean, you got to tell the rest of the story, you know? So I don't know if uh, perhaps that was something that had had been lost. Um, I've talked before about the technology of the of the codex versus the scroll. Scroll, everything's all in one thing, but it's kind of unwieldy. The codex is easier to read and easier to transport, easier to copy because you can do it page by page, but it's a bunch of loose pages bound together, more commonly what we would think of as a book, like a paperback. So, you know, did a page get ripped out? Was a page missing in these earlier manuscripts and, and somebody else uh, had the full copy or, or was this something that was added later? And if that bothers you that somebody might add something to the Gospel of Mark later, just consider the Gospel of John was written much later than Mark. Matthew is written after Mark. That's added to the Bible later. You know, so there's a point at which sort of all the texts that need to be written, everything that's scripture has been written and that's that's done and that's over. But uh, clearly it wasn't done when Mark got done because Matthew hadn't written his gospel yet. Luke hadn't written his gospel yet. John hadn't written his gospel yet. So I don't really have a problem with somebody, uh, you know, Mark or, again, we, we call it Mark because we, we the, the tradition says Mark is the one that wrote this. We know it's the Holy Spirit inspiring human writers, whoever the human writers really are. So I don't see a problem with, you know, adding a little bit to Mark you know, later on. Here's what I think happened. This is not even really a scholarly thought. This is just, this is just what I think. So you can take it with a, a grain of salt and forget all about it after I say it, if you like. But I do f- freelance film and video production for a living. Most of you know that. That's why I have the cool equipment that I've got here. And I do, uh, I've done a number of videos raising money for um, nonprofits like a, a fundraising launch, a little video they're going to show at the fundraising launch, that kind of thing. Videos for a capital campaign. I did some videos for North Boulevard, that sort of thing. And something that I kind of learned to do and learned that was that was pretty effective and 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 through the wisdom of, of other people that I worked with. In the video, a lot of the videos that I've done, you won't see me mention, you know, the money they're trying to raise how they're going to spend the money, how much they want from each person, how the money breaks down, budgets, pie charts. You know, in a lot of capital campaign videos, you'll see that. And it can be effective and it can be useful. That's just not typically what I do. Part of that is, you know, I charge a little more for the video production that I do. And so I want to make sure the video I make lasts them past the fundraising lunch, right? So if I make a video that says, here's who our organization is, well, they can continue to use that even after the fundraising is done, right? So that's that's one reason. But another reason is this. A, a, a video is really compelling for condensing the story, being able to replay it at every fundraising event that you do, right? So it's the same story told every time. You're not handing the mic off to somebody who's going to stammer around and be a bad storyteller and forget things. Oh, I forgot to tell you this. And, you know, so you've got this polished, finished thing that has all the detail in it you need and you can pass it around. You can reproduce it. It can go anywhere. And it tells the, the real heart of the thing that you need to do. You can still tell a story. You can still connect emotionally. Right. But when it comes to, you know, asking for money at the fundraising lunch, you need a person that that is trusted by the people at the lunch to make that ask. You need someone that they trust to make that ask and you need the ask to be personal and it really to be to be urgent and needs to be in person. Right? So just imagine you watch a video on Facebook and the video says please give $30 to our organization. You might think, yeah, that's probably a good idea. I might do that. I'll think about doing that one of these days. Very few of you would be motivated right then to find out how you can give $30. But if you're at an event or if you're at someone's home and they 
you know, show you a video. And then instead of the video, the person you're, that's standing right in front of you says, so we'd love for you to give $30 to this organization. I'll, I'll take it from you right now and I'll take care of it. Well, you'd be much more motivated to, to then go ahead and pay, right? There's something about that personal ask that is very powerful. It's very persuasive, but it also, it allows you to ask questions. It allows you to clear up any confusion. It allows you to fill in the gaps. Uh, and every person's going to have different questions and every person's going to have different apprehensions, right? Why were these gospels written? Why were they written? They were written to tell other people who didn't know about Jesus the full story about Jesus. Mark writes to, uh, we think, primarily Gentiles, the Roman world at the time, Greek-speaking world. Matthew seems to be writing to his, his fellow Jews. Luke is writing to, to sort of make a, a, a good... He's sort of the first apologist. He, he really writes out an account. So as he says in the beginning, so that you can remember what you believed. So it's almost like Luke is writing to Christians so that you can remember what you said you believed and what you what you um, signed on for when you were baptized, when you received the Holy Spirit and said, I will trust and follow Jesus for the rest of my life. John writes his in his old age, writes about a whole bunch of different things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't even mention. And he seems to be writing to say to the early church, you know about Jesus, but I knew Jesus. You know, don't, don't, don't search the scriptures to learn about Jesus. Search the scriptures to know Jesus. And I knew him. And I want to tell you about my best friend. They all had different goals in what they were doing. But the thing that they had in common is that they're trying to encapsulate their full story in a complete reproducible format that can then be disseminated to anybody in the world relatively easily. Um, I mentioned the codex a minute ago, the sort of loose leaf, you know, bound paper book or sort of the precursor to the book. The codex was a relatively new technology, but the church made great use of it. So at the in the first century, about 75% of writing was on scrolls and about 25% was on these new codices, but not so with the New Testament. With the New Testament, about 75% of the New Testament is on codices and only about you know 25% is on scrolls because they were really adopting that new technology so that they could disseminate it faster. So here's my thoughts on the way Mark ends and that it ends with the women being astonished, no appearance of Jesus yet, and the tomb being empty. When you end the story there, what is everyone in the room that you've just read the story? Because remember, you're reading this out loud to people. This is not something people took home and, and read by themselves the way we do. This was read out loud to, to an audience, to a small group in a house or, or to a, a group that had gathered in the marketplace or, or to a synagogue or, or to a school of thought. And, and this sermon is read. It's kind of like a video. It's sort of pre-prepared. Pre, pre it's got all the, the notes in there, all the all the main ideas that need to be gotten across. And you don't have to worry about the communication ability of the person reading it. As long as they can read the words off the page, they'll get the story right. You know. So imagine you're there and someone's reading the Gospel of Mark and they end with, and they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Packs the book up, rolls the screw up, however it is. What's the audience going to do? Well, well, you can't end there. What happened? What happened next? Why was it empty? What happened? There's a thousand questions you have. And now what you have is you have the person that's there in person saying, I'll tell you what happened next because I saw him myself. Remember, Mark was probably written first and was certainly written at a time when many people who witnessed Jesus with their own eyes resurrected were still alive and were possibly the first people who used the gospel of Mark as an evangelistic tool. In fact, who is Mark? Well, he's John Mark. And we have a lot of association with John Mark and Peter. 
there's, uh, I won't get into all the backstory on that, but there's an association that they're together. And so we see John Mark uh, recounting this gospel. And what we realize is the gospel of Mark, it's really, it's kind of Peter's gospel, right? So John Mark may have been the one that compiled it and wrote it and, and got people to compile all the stories or how, however the, I don't know the mechanics, the logistics of it, but it seems like the telling of it was probably from his mentor, his discipler, his disciple maker, Peter. So in a lot of ways, Mark is really Peter's gospel. So if Peter was using John Mark's gospel, how might he be using it? Here's the story. Here's all the things. And now I saw him with my own eyes. And let me tell you how he changed my life. And he gives a personal testimony. He makes the sales pitch in person, right? Much more persuasive, much more powerful. Now, as the gospels begin to disseminate, that's not quite as practical, right? You want to get the full story of Jesus going out into all the world. I mean, we, we, we believe um, Thomas went as far as India. We believe Paul may have gone as far as Spain. Certainly he ended up in Rome, uh, which is where he eventually died. But uh, Paul went all over Europe. Um, we, uh, I think as Andrew maybe went down all into North Africa. The whole, the, the original, we're talking about just the first 12 guys, the first 12 disciples covered so much of the known world at the time. And uh, so to disseminate that quickly, you want to make sure the full Jesus story goes out. And so you can see why somebody might come along very quickly and and tack on you know, the ending of the story to Mark. But maybe it was one of these things that's an optional ending. Hey, if you're doing it in person, you just stop here. But you know, if you just got to hand it off, make sure you include this part. Who knows? That's just my idea. You can throw it away. But I think that Mark was written as a persuasive tool, and it's really persuasive to end on that cliffhanger because the person in person can sort of make the sales pitch. In other words, say, and you need, you should believe in Jesus. You need to trust and follow him. You need to be baptized. You need to repent. And um, that's a very powerful thing. Matthew is uh, got a little different aim. So when we go back to the Matthew scripture in Matthew 28, he goes on and continues the story. We see Jesus risen. And there's more here that we're going to continue to read. We'll get to it, I promise. And I think, again, you got to consider Matthew's audience. Who's Matthew's audience? It's first century Jews. As we read the very beginning of Matthew, chapter one of Matthew, we feel like we're reading Old Testament scripture. We feel like we're reading the Hebrew scriptures. Matthew knows as he's writing this gospel out that he's writing scripture. Well, scripture is the full story and has some finality to it and includes all the details. And so it would make sense that Matthew would make sure to go ahead and continue out the story and finish it, especially if by that point, you know, Mark was already... Um, uh, going all the way to the end of chapter 16 as, as we have it today. So uh, I'm, 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 I'm on board with Matthew, with Mark 16, 9 and following being inspired scripture, just because I'm saying the original manuscripts probably ended at verse eight. I'm not saying that part's not inspired or to ignore it or anything like that. I'm just saying the original manuscripts didn't have it. I mean, this is the fact that we know now and um, just speculating as to why that might be. But Matthew goes on and continues to tell some more of the story, but I don't want us to forget the principle. Here's the principle. The gospels are here, not just for our reading and for edification. They're to tell people about Jesus. That's the whole point. What is our role? What is Matthew? What is Jesus through the, the, the Matthew text been trying to say to us this entire text? Hey, don't just be a religious person. Be a disciple and be a disciple maker. Go out and tell people the good news, the great news that Jesus has come, the kingdom of God is on its way, and it's already here. Things are already changing. Things are already being made new. That one day you get to live in the love of God with Jesus forever. It's great news. Go tell everybody. 
And so the principle is the same. Though we have Matthew, we shouldn't just teach Matthew and then walk away. We shouldn't just have a class on Matthew and then move on to the next thing. What we really ought to do is say, here's the story of Matthew. Here's the change that it's made in my life. And I really want you to believe it. If we read and study Matthew, if you watch all 16 hours plus, you know, of these, of these videos about Matthew and you walk away and you tell no one, what was the point? What good was it? You know? So um, I'm very thankful I had coffee with somebody earlier today and we were talking about uh, some of these things that we're talking about in Matthew. And I was telling her about some of the things that I've learned in, in teaching this course. And we were able to talk about baptism and what that means and the Holy Spirit and the story of Jesus and uh, learning from the Bible. And we're able to talk about all kinds of things. And if I just gave her some academic knowledge and then walked away, what good would that be for her? That's not great news for her. It's just information. Information by itself is, is useless. It's only when you can put some information to use that's going to improve your life in some kind of way that it becomes wisdom, right? Uh, my um, The esteemed philosopher, my freshman English teacher, Larry Bivens, he used, you know, people would say knowledge is power and he would say, no, knowledge is not power. Knowledge is potential power. Wisdom is power. Wisdom is when you take your knowledge and you put it to good use. And I learned a lot from Mr. Bivens in freshman English. And that was one of the things that's always stuck with me. Knowledge by itself, what good is it? You got to put it to use. And so even though Matthew has an ending, unlike maybe Mark did, let's not forget that principle. The story of Jesus is here, but we shouldn't just wait for Jesus, wait, wait for people to discover it. Wait for Jesus to, to, to go and, and surprise people with it. No, it's been given to us. It's our job. And we're going to see more about that as we continue to read. So let's look. Let's keep reading. We're now in verse 11, continuing on. As they were on their way, this is the women. Oh, very important point. I almost skipped over. Um, let me let me not skip over that. Who's seeing Jesus here for the first time? Women. Look at Mark's account. Look at Matthew's account. It's, it's women and only women. Unaccompanied women. This is a huge apologetic for the Jesus story. Remember, an apologetic, the Greek word apologia, the idea of apology, means to give a defense. So when we're talking about apologetics with the Christian faith, we're talking about things that defend what we believe. And the fact that women were the first witnesses is a big apologetic. We don't really think much about it in 21st century American culture because Christianity has had so much of an effect on Western culture that the status of women and children and other overlooked peoples has been elevated. But not so at the time that this was written, not so at the time of these events. Women were considered so crazy and unreliable that they could not even be used as witnesses in court. You would not, you would never in a court, in a Roman court, in a Jewish court in the first century, you would not call upon a woman, certainly in a Jewish court. You would never call upon a woman as a witness because no one would trust what she had to say because that was just the attitude about the testimony of women at the time. It's very sad that that was the case. And I'm thankful that that's changed in many places in the world. Still got a lot of change left to do in respect to how women are viewed in society, even here in the West, even in the church. Okay. But um, what you see here is number one, the status of women being elevated because Jesus could have first appeared to anybody he wanted. He could have waited for the, the men disciples to show up in Galilee before anybody saw him, but he didn't. He appeared first to women. And women here in the writing are, are written as the first witnesses. And we have to say that can only be true. If you are making this up, you would never 
have that as a detail. The first witnesses of Jesus resurrected were women. You would never put that in there because no one would believe you. You would only write it if it were true. You, you, you gain nothing by it. It only makes you look bad in the current culture in which it's written. And especially, remember, Matthew's talking to his fellow first century Jews. He's talking to these Pharisees that hated Jesus. He's trying to make the case. Hey, this guy was the Messiah. Here, what's your proof? Oh, my proof? The testimony of these women. It's a, it's a difficult case for him to make with the audience that he has. So why would he include that detail? Well, he included it because it's true, because it's what happened. So the fact that women were the first witnesses to Jesus resurrected, as we have here in Matthew, in Matthew very explicitly, it's a huge apologetic that what we're reading is the truth. All right, going on. Uh, as they were on their way, these women, having just having seen Jesus, uh, see, as they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. If this reaches the governor's ears, we will deal with him and keep you out of trouble. So the guards have gone to the chief priest and said, uh, this earthquake happened and we fainted. And when we woke up, the tomb was open and Jesus' body was gone. And, you know, they probably saw lights or the angel or the, maybe they witnessed this thing that happened with the men, women. Maybe they saw the women encounter Jesus as, the, as they were leaving. We're not really sure exactly what it is that they, they saw and encountered while they were conscious. But they go and they mention to the priest, well, any guard that fell asleep on duty or somehow failed in his duty, I mean, would immediately be put to death. The, the Romans, uh, even in charge of, of the, this Jewish guard, whether it was a Roman or Jewish guard, we don't know. But they go to the high priest and they say, hey, we were doing what you asked us to do, but here's what happened. And so the Jews say, well, just say that the disciples came and stole him because you fell asleep. To which the guards would say, are you kidding me? Falling asleep on our job, we immediately would be put to death. And so the response you know, the, the Pharisees already know what the response is going to be. So they go ahead and say, hey, if this reaches the governor's ears, who's the governor? It's Pontius Pilate. If this reaches Pilate's ears, don't worry. We'll take care of him. We'll make sure that nothing happens to you. We'll defend you. We'll keep you out of trouble. So you see the collusion that's going on here. Uh, moving on, verse 15. They took the money. So again, these guys are bribed to tell a story that they don't know is right. So they may not know what happened, right? But they... Even if the disciples did come and steal the body in the, in the middle of the night, they wouldn't know that either because they were passed out, right? You see what I'm saying? So they, they're definitely taking a bribe to lie. They're telling a lie, even if historically there was somehow proven that that is what actually happened. There's no way that they would know because they were passed out, right? So we know what happened. We know Jesus was resurrected. That he's the son of God, right? But the priest didn't know. So they say, this is probably what happened. Just say that's what happened. We'll pay you this money to say that's what happened. If it reaches Pilate, don't worry. We'll even take care of that. But you got to... You got to stick with the story. They take the money and agree to do it. They took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been spread among Jewish people to this day. Now, it's interesting because Matthew is obviously saying to this day in which I am writing, to the time of this writing, right? And uh, so that was something that was spread very quickly and was spread among Jewish people. If you look at the work of Lee Strobel, like in the case for Christ, and of course, a lot of the sources that he uses, uh, what's this guy's name, Josh McDowell, and, and some other people that have done thinking on this. I remember I read a book when I was young called The Tomb Was Empty, and, and it really comes back to one of the greatest evidence. 
is that the tomb must have been empty. And here's all the reasons why we we have to believe that. And if we believe that, then that definitely means Jesus is the Son of God. The, the tomb being empty is a is a big is a big hand. If the tomb wasn't empty, then let's let's all quit wasting our time. This is a big waste of time. But if the tomb was empty, then Jesus is real. It, it, it really verifies the gospel. It helps us deal with the things maybe we don't understand or the conflicts we think we see in, in scriptures or in the Old Testament or something like that. And so the tomb being empty is a big deal. The, that, that's really the cornerstone of the faith, Jesus' resurrection, right? And so um, when you really think about the disciples coming and stealing the body and the things that transpired after that... and it's just a statement. It just doesn't make any sense at all. It just doesn't hold up at all. We don't have time to get into it tonight, but it's just something that doesn't hold up at all. And so if you're to look at Case for Christ or look at any of Lee Strobel's works about this idea or look at any of the documents that have been historically written um, about Jesus's resurrection as an apologetic, it'll become very clear the story is complete nonsense, but it was believable at the time, certainly at this time, because by this time, the disciples had not yet been martyred for what they believed and had taught for decades, Right. At this time, they're just, it's an easy story to make up. Well, this is probably what happened. Let's just say that's what happened. But it continued to go on even till Matthew's day. Matthew's writing in a time when some of the disciples have already been murdered. Some of the disciples have already died for what they believe. So at the time Matthew writes about it, it's starting to become clear. Yeah, this is kind of a nonsense story. That's why Matthew includes it. Because he knows his Jews, that he's to whom he's speaking, his, his fellow contemporary Jews, they've heard this explanation. And after the story Matthew's just told, they have to see... This doesn't make any sense. It's also interesting because it says it's spread among the Jewish people to this day. And you will still see you know, religious scholars, biblical scholars, non-believers who will still say, ah, oh, yeah, they probably stole the body. And the story is still spread even to our day. Very curious. Let's continue and finish reading Matthew 28. Beginning in verse 16. Matthew 28, verse 16. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped. And notice Jesus doesn't stop them from worshiping. Once again, when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Wow. Okay. After everything that's transpired, you've seen Jesus die. And now you see him again, resurrected and in Galilee. And yet they still have doubts. So, if you are trying your best to trust and follow Jesus, but you still have doubts, take heart. You're in good company, okay? And Jesus is here to speak to your doubts. Let's see what he says. Let's see what his last words were. Uh, David Young always says a person's last words tell you uh, sort of the first things about them, right? And so we want to make Jesus's last words our first priority. So let's look at Jesus's last words. Jesus came near. And said to them, all authority, there's that word again, talking about the kingdom, right? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, everywhere. That's all of creation, anything you can conceive of, spiritual, the galaxy, whatever, everything. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. I, think I mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. In English, the word go is an imperative. In Greek, it is not. In Greek, it's a participle, going. What Jesus is saying is, as you go about, as you're going, as you're going out, as you go about your, your mission, as you, as you go out, as I've sent you out before, the going is assumed. 
It's assumed you're going to go. And isn't it assumed that we're going to go? I mean, we're going to go to work. We're going to go to family events. We're going to go home. We're going to go to our neighbors. We're going to go to the coffee shop. We're going to go out to eat. We do lots of going. And so what Jesus is saying is, okay, as you go, make disciples. And that word is a single word in the Greek, which just means to disciple as a verb. It means to mentor somebody, to help them trust and follow Jesus. It's a single word, disciple. Going, disciple. That's the Greek, right? And uh, then everything that follows are participles. Again, they're modifying that one imperative, which is disciple. So in the Great Commission, there is only one command, and it's disciple. That's the Great Commission. One command, disciple. All of the modifiers around it are telling you how to do that. You're gonna, first, we've learned you're going to do it as you're going. As you go out, disciple. Let's see what else we're going to do. Going, therefore, make disciples of whom? Of all nations. I believe the Greek word there is the ethnos, the ideas of all peoples, of all different kinds of people, all ethnicities, all different kinds of people. Anyone you meet is the implication. Anyone, everyone. Disciple everyone. And what are you going to do? Well, you're going to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We'll look at Acts 2, you know, to find out why we would do that and the implications of that. Teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Okay, so we're going to do a lot of teaching. No, Jesus does not say to teach. He says, teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. Jesus does not say, teach them everything I commanded you. He says, teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. Now, this word teach can be problematic for us as 21st century Americans, especially modern, postmodern societies. Why? How do you teach in this day and age? You take a course, you take a class, you enroll in school. I pay you, you give me knowledge, I have that knowledge, and I figure out what to do with it on my own. That's what we do have classes, we have fill in the blanks, we have workbooks. That's what we do when we teach. How did you teach in the first century? How did you teach for pretty much any time except the last, you know, 100 years or so? It's through mentorship, through apprenticeship. You want to learn to be a blacksmith? You leave home, you move in with a blacksmith, and you blacksmith all day until you become a master blacksmith yourself. And then you teach somebody else how to blacksmith, and that's how we have more blacksmiths, right? Mentorship, apprenticeship, discipling. So when you see the word teach here, you should just replace it with the idea of discipling. Okay? Because, because at the time that Matthew's writing this, at the time that Jesus is saying this, that's how you teach anything is by walking alongside the people you're teaching and showing them how to do it until they become masters of it. So Jesus is saying, hey, I am a master of everything. I have authority over everything. Now I am sharing some of that authority with you so that when you go out, you will disciple other people, all people, every person. You'll baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit so that they will have their sins washed away, that they'll publicly show their commitment, they'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, go look at Acts 2 for that whole total story. And what you're going to do is you're going to teach them to observe everything I've taught you. In other words, you're going to show them how to obey. So we've taken the Great Commission, and many times in modern days, we've said it means have a gospel meeting. It means uh, share the podcast with somebody. It means have a class. It means have a Bible study where I tell you what the Bible means. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about living life with people. Jesus is talking about being Jesus to people, demonstrating the principles of Jesus to people in the way that you live, 
everywhere you go to all people. When you go to the coffee shop, when you go out to eat, hey, when you go out to eat, how you tip says something to your server about your capacity for love and your, your recognition of them. Just looking at your server and learning their name and speaking to them as a human being is more than a lot of tables will do. You ask any server what one of the worst times to work is, you know what they'll tell you? Sunday lunch. Because the church crowd, they come out with their families, they come out with the people they know, the people they want to spend time with, the people they see once a week. It's a big event. We're going to sit down, we're going to have a big feast, and we're going to share time with each other, and we're going to laugh and tell stories, and we're going to eat whatever we want. We're going to have our food done the way that we like it. We're going to have refills whenever we want. We're going to have more butter, please. Where's my ranch dressing? They never look at the servers in the eye. They treat them like vending machines. Don't learn their names. Don't treat them as a human being. Don't treat them as someone made in the image of God who desperately needs to hear good news that Jesus saves and that Jesus makes everything new. That's great news. It's good news for the poor. (laughs) There are few poorer people in the United States than those who are waiting tables for a living, right? So if you can't treat your server well, and if you can't tip well, that says something to your server, especially if they identify you with Jesus, that says something to them about Jesus. Are you telling them the truth about Jesus if you're not modeling Jesus to them? Jesus says, as you're going, disciple people and teach them to observe what I taught you. In other words, show them how to obey. And so in everything that we do, we should always, that's why this is the Great Commission. It's not something we ought to do once in our life. Oh, I shared Jesus with somebody one time and got them baptized. This is great. Yeah, that's not what this is about. This is about a lifestyle. Remember early on in Matthew, John the Baptist says it, Jesus says it a number of times, says it to the religious people, says it to disciples. If you're not producing fruit, if you're a branch that doesn't produce fruit, you're going to be cut off and thrown into the fire. You got to be producing fruit. Jesus is reiterating it here again. In everything you do, the thing that drives you to do anything really ought to be encouraging other people, loving other people, modeling Jesus for them, helping them to obey the principles of Jesus. I've talked before about making yourself a self-appointed chaplain at a place that you go to all the time. Maybe it's a coffee shop or or a restaurant or it's a grocery store or something like that. Be a self-appointed chaplain. You can be encouraging. You can be there when people need you. You can even help redirect conversations. You know, people are talking about, maybe they're talking about their parents or some difficulty they're having, you know. You can direct that into a conversation about about love and caring for people and can really open up spiritual avenues for conversation. Take some practice like anything else. And so you're, you're probably going to do it awkwardly and poorly in the beginning. It's okay. It's better than not doing it. You never know what's going to happen uh, until you do it. God can't steer a car that's not moving, right? So you got to be going and you got to be thinking about all people as people who need to be loved and people that you can show how to obey the teachings of Jesus. Let's finish Jesus's words here. I'll start again at the beginning of his quote. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you are feeling inadequate, if you're feeling like you don't know enough Bible, if you're feeling like you're not a good enough teacher, if you're feeling like you're too introverted or too shy or too awkward or or not a good speaker, I mean, 
Just think about Peter. Just think about Moses, who may have even had a speech impediment, as far as we know, right? Uh, think about the think about David, who was this little shepherd. Think about the people that God chooses to do incredible things. Uh, Abraham was just a nomad. I mean, even even Jesus comes to earth in the form of of a an illegitimate child in the eyes of, of the people around. Joseph and Mary were, were not married yet. This is a huge scandal. He's, he's born in a filthy place and immediately placed into a, a filthy manger. He's born in scandal and, and filth and, and blood and, and chaos. And what's his message? I'm the king of the universe. It's a startling story, but it's a great story because that means God can take those of us who have humble beginnings and use us to do really amazing things that fill people with, with love and inspiration and hope. So if you're feeling inadequate, great, because God's going to come in and, and do a lot of work through you. It means you're not going to try and do all the work yourself. It means you're not going to take the credit. It means you're going to understand when things happen, when great things happen, that it's God who's doing them. He's doing them through you. And so Jesus leaves them with that reminder. Remember, I'm always with you all the way to the end of the age, to the last breath in your body, till, till the, the last ray of sunshine falls on this earth. I'm with you. God, the Father, is listening. Jesus is, is with us. We are hidden in him. The Holy Spirit is in us, is, is instructing us, is reminding us. God is with us, and he won't ever leave us, not till, even till the end of the age. So I want to leave you with that tonight. Jesus is with you, and he sends you out, not on a one-time mission, not to, not to one person, but he sends you out to love and to mentor, to encourage, to disciple everyone you meet, even just a little bit. Discipleship is a lifestyle. The Gospel of Matthew comes along and says, no, we don't want religion, we want mercy, right? We don't want sacrifice, we want mercy. We don't want religion, we want discipleship. We want a discipling community. We want people to trust and follow Jesus, and we want other people to uh, learn to trust and follow Jesus. We want to help people trust and follow Jesus. It's, it's a lifestyle that we're to adopt, and, it, and it, it's in every relationship that we have. It should be. I hope this lesson series on Matthew has been encouraging to you. More than that, I hope it's been challenging to you. Somebody sent me a note the other day that says, you like to step on my toes on occasion. Well, I'd like to think it's not me stepping on your toes. Maybe it's the scriptures <laughs> stepping on your toes. And it should. It should challenge us. It should point out where we need to grow. And it should encourage us to be strong and to produce fruit. So my prayer for you is that you've been encouraged, that you've learned something, that you're inspired and hopeful because of the great news of Jesus, and that you're going to share that encouragement, that hope, the great love that Jesus offers with every person you encounter for the rest of your life. So go make disciples. I love you very much, and I'll see you soon. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.